I've covered plenty of cases where the police make mistakes. It's a reality in many investigations. Officers are human. I don't expect them to be perfect, but I do expect them to be honest, to follow protocol, to do everything in their reasonable power to keep innocent people safe. Because if you can't trust the authorities to look out for you, where are you supposed to go when you need help? And when the only officer who knows something can't get his story straight, how can you tell the difference between an honest mistake and something far more sinister? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet two men whose disappearances have a lot in common. They each went missing from Naples, Florida in the early 2000s, just three months apart. And both men were last seen with the same person, a sheriff's deputy with a spotless record. Their names are Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos. Naples is an affluent city on the western tip of Florida, part of the state's so-called Paradise Coast. It's a place where white sand beaches stretch for miles along the crystal blue waters of the Gulf of Mexico. In Naples, luxury shopping is a pastime. Golf courses abound. But this upper-class enclave doesn't just attract people who are already wealthy. It also attracts those who aspire to that lifestyle. For many, Naples is a place of opportunity. And opportunity is precisely what brought Terrence Williams to town. It's 2004, and 27-year-old Terrence has been living in Naples for about two years. He left his hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee to be closer to his mom and to find more lucrative work. It's been an adjustment, but things are looking up. Terrence works two jobs, one in construction and one at a pizza hut in Bonita Springs, the next town over. He's already saved up enough money to move out of his mom's house and into an apartment with his friend, Jason Gonzalez, and to buy a car, a white 1984 Cadillac. There's just one problem. Terrence's license is suspended. Back when he lived in Chattanooga, he was arrested for driving under the influence. It'll be another six months before he gets it back. So even though Terrence has his own car, he relies on his mom and his roommate for rides to and from work. On Sunday, January 11th, 2004, Terrence's mom picks him up at the end of his shift at Pizza Hut. It's around 11 p.m. They make the 13-mile trip from Benina Springs to Naples, where she drops Terrence off at his apartment and leaves. Terrence heads inside changes his clothes, and tells his roommate Jason that his co-workers invited him to a party that night. And since these are the days before Uber and Lyft, he asks Jason if he can give him a ride back to Benita Springs. But it's almost midnight on a Sunday, so Jason tells Terrence no, he can't drive him. Now, Terrence shouldn't drive, he doesn't have a license, and his Cadillac is unregistered and uninsured. 
but he really wants to go to this party, and it's not that far away. Weighing his options, he thinks he can probably make it there without any trouble, so he decides to take the risk. Terrence hops in his Cadillac and drives to the party, and Jason goes to bed. When Jason wakes up the next morning, Terrence still isn't home. But Jason has a bunch of missed calls from an unknown number that came through around 4 a.m. He calls the number back and learns it belongs to one of Terrence's co-workers. She was at the party last night with Terrence. She tells Jason that Terrence must have borrowed her phone because she didn't place those calls. Maybe Terrence was looking for a ride home from Jason, but she says Terrence ultimately drove himself. He left the party in his Cadillac sometime between 5 and 6 a.m. After hanging up, Jason goes about his day as he normally would, assuming his roommate will turn up. But after another 24 hours pass without any word, Jason emails Terrence's mother, Marcia. He asks if she's heard from her son, and Marcia says no. She hasn't heard from him since she dropped him off on Sunday, which is unusual because according to Marcia, she normally talks to Terrence at least once a day. Concerned, Jason and Marcia call around to see if anyone's seen or heard from him. Friends, coworkers, they even contact nearby jails and hospitals in case Terrence got pulled over or ended up in some kind of accident. No one's seen him. The next day, January 14th, Marcia skips work to look for her son. She drives to Bonita Springs to talk to Terrence's coworkers. She learns Terrence missed his last three shifts and hasn't picked up his latest paycheck either. This, more than anything, raises a red flag for Marcia. Terrence moved to Naples to get his life and his finances back on track. He wouldn't have skipped work, and he definitely wouldn't have left his paycheck sitting at Pizza Hut for three days. So, Marcia heads to the Naples police station to speak to officials. Now, if this isn't your first time listening to this show, you probably know how commonplace it is for law enforcement to hesitate before filing a missing person report. And you know my opinion on the matter. The moment someone is not where they're supposed to be, you can report them missing. There is no amount of time you have to wait. But what happens to Marcia is unthinkable to me. In a 2012 interview for an investigation discovery series, Marcia says that rather than filing a report on the spot, officials initially tell her to come back in a month if she hasn't heard from her son. Let me repeat that, a month. We all know how important those first few hours and those first few days are in a missing person investigation. Waiting a month is absolutely ridiculous. So with no help from law enforcement, Marcia turns to the people she knows will support her, her family back in Tennessee. From nearly 800 miles away, Terrence's relatives begin their own investigation. And after enough pressure, they're able to get a missing persons report filed on the 15th. The next day on Friday, January 16th, four days after Terrence was last seen, they get their first lead. One of Terrence's aunts tracks down his car. It's apparently sitting in the parking lot of a towing company in Florida. According to the company's paperwork, it was moved there four days ago, on the morning after the party, 
and it was towed from the Naples Memorial Garden Cemetery at the request of a member of the Collier County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Steve Calkins. Marcia reaches out to law enforcement again, hoping they can tell her more about what happened, but they tell her they don't have any more information. So she reaches out to the cemetery directly to see if anyone who works there remembers seeing something. And a few different employees tell Marcia what they witnessed that day. On Monday, January 12th, around 12.30 p.m., they saw Deputy Steve Calkins pull Terrence's car over. Because they were on the main road, both men pulled into the cemetery for what appeared to be a routine stop. According to the employees, the exchange seemed cordial. Calkins asked Terrence for his ID, but Terrence didn't have one on him. So Calkins put Terrence in the backseat of his cruiser. And before he drove off, he told one of the cemetery employees that he'd be back to have Terrence's Cadillac towed. Not long afterward, Calkins did come back, but only to move Terrence's car before leaving again. The tow company arrived later to take the car. Now, this story confuses Marcia. She's spoken to police and the county jail. Both told her they didn't have any records of Terrence being brought into their custody. So if he wasn't under arrest, where did Calkins take her son? Marcia and her family flood the police station with calls until finally someone takes their concerns seriously. The dispatch supervisor at Collier County Sheriff's Department agrees to contact Deputy Calkins directly. The supervisor asks Calkins what happened on January 12th, the day Terrence disappeared. And Calkins says he can't remember. He doesn't recall having a white Cadillac towed. In fact, he acts unsure whether he was even at the cemetery that day. When asked about the alleged interaction he had with Terrence, he just says, quote, I never arrested nobody. As a reminder, the events we're talking about here happened just four days prior to this conversation. Multiple witnesses saw Calkins in Naples Memorial Gardens with Terrence. They watched him put Terrence in the backseat of his patrol car. They watched him move Terrence's Cadillac. They even spoke to the deputy at one point. Now, I've listened to a recording of the exchange between the dispatch supervisor and Deputy Calkins. I have to say, I found this sudden lapse in memory really unsettling. And it's even more unsettling considering this is not the first time someone allegedly disappeared on Deputy Calkins' watch. It's October 2003, three months before Terrence Williams goes missing. Felipe Santos is a 23-year-old living in Immokalee, Florida, a small town about 35 miles outside of Naples. Like Terrence, he's working hard on his financial future. But Felipe has even more hurdles to clear. Felipe's undocumented, which, as you probably know, presents a slew of professional, economic, and social challenges. For the past couple years, he was employed as a migrant farm worker. It was backbreaking, low-paying work. But Felipe was able to scrape by. Then, after Felipe and his partner had a baby girl, Felipe found work alongside his two brothers on a construction site in Naples. That's where he works now. But the job presents its own challenges. 
because Felipe and his brothers are all undocumented, they can't get their driver's licenses. They don't have any form of official identification in the United States, so they're not able to register or insure a vehicle. The simple task of driving to Naples every day for work is a risk. If they're pulled over, there's a real chance they could get arrested and deported. But it's a risk they take to provide for their families. On October 14th, 2003, at about 6 a.m., Felipe and his brothers load into their car and start to make their way into the city. Felipe drives. Around 6.30 a.m., they're almost to the construction site when Felipe accidentally gets into the wrong turning lane and hits another car. The accident is minor. No one's hurt, but there's damage to both vehicles. So the two cars pull into the nearest parking lot, and the other driver flags down a nearby police officer, Deputy Steve Calkins. According to a sworn statement made by Deputy Calkins a few weeks later, the interaction he has with Felipe is friendly. But according to the other driver at the scene, Calkins appears annoyed, saying he's tired of dealing with people without licenses and insurance. Regardless, after learning that Felipe doesn't have a license, Felipe's brothers watch the deputy place him in the back of his patrol car and drive away. Naturally, his brothers are under the impression that Felipe has been arrested. So later that day, they call the jail center. But Felipe apparently isn't there. Officials tell them he was never taken into custody. Assuming that maybe there was a mistake, Felipe's brothers show up in person to the jail to check. And Felipe's really not there. Now, as you can probably imagine, this is an extremely difficult situation for the Santos family to navigate. As undocumented immigrants, they're not afforded the same rights that many of us take for granted. They're protected in certain ways under the constitution. It's legal for them to report crimes, but getting seriously involved with the police could open up doors that do more harm to their family than good, which is incredibly unfortunate as I spoke about while examining William and Margaret Patterson's case, when undocumented immigrants feel free to report crimes to law enforcement, it only strengthens our communities. But as horrible as it is, and as suspicious as Felipe's disappearance seems, the Santos family doesn't feel like there are many avenues they can take. Even going door to door or hanging flyers in their neighborhood could attract unwanted attention. Close to two weeks pass with no sign of Felipe. Like Terrence, he misses work. He doesn't pick up his paychecks. He doesn't contact any of his loved ones. And the Santos family doesn't receive any updates on what happened after he got into Deputy Culkin's car that morning until October 27th, 13 days later. They receive a letter from the Collier County Sheriff's Department that includes a copy of Deputy Culkin's incident report. And this is what he claims happened. For the most part, Culkin's describes the incident on October 14th much in the same way as Felipe's brothers had. Felipe got into a car accident with another driver. The other driver called Culkin's to the scene and the deputy found out that Felipe didn't have a license, insurance, or registration for his car which is obviously against the law. But Calkins claims he never actually brought Felipe to jail. He intended to, but ultimately didn't. 
According to the deputy's account, Felipe was so polite and cooperative that Calkins decided to cut him a break. He never took him down to the station. He just gave him a number of citations, totaling $2,000 in fines, and told Felipe he'd need to appear in court on November 13th, about a month later. Then, Calkins said he gave Felipe a lift to a nearby Circle K convenience store so he could use a payphone and call someone for a ride. Allegedly, he dropped him off and that was that. When Felipe's family reads this report, they have no idea what to make of it. It doesn't make sense to them. If Felipe was dropped off by a payphone, he would have contacted one of them for a ride. Something about Deputy Culkin's report doesn't sit well with them. So unsure of how else to proceed, the Santos family takes the leap. They report Felipe missing on October 29th, 2003, and file a formal complaint against Deputy Calkins. As a result, Internal Affairs launches an investigation into Calkins' behavior to see if there was any wrongdoing. Turns out, the complaint from the Santos family is the first ever filed against the deputy. After 17 years of service, his record is more than spotless. It's glowing. People from the communities he serves have sent letters to the station praising Calkins' professionalism. He even won two awards for outstanding service. Before the investigation concludes, a theory crops up that Felipe might be on the run or hiding to avoid prosecution or deportation, that he might have returned to Oaxaca, Mexico, where some of his relatives still live. But there's no evidence to suggest that this is actually true. And when contacted, the Mexican consulate has no reason to believe Felipe's in Oaxaca or any other part of the country for that matter. The theory doesn't catch on. The Santos family knows Felipe would never abandon his partner and daughter. He's way more responsible than that. Which makes what happens next all the more unnerving. November 13th rolls around and Felipe misses his court date. Under US law, this technically makes him a fugitive. But while the Santos family suspects Deputy Calkins knows more about Felipe's disappearance than he's let on, the investigation by Internal Affairs reportedly doesn't find evidence to suggest any wrongdoing. They can't prove Felipe wasn't dropped off at Circle K. So eventually, on January 7th, the Santos family gets a letter informing them that Deputy Calkins has been exonerated. He's cleared of any wrongdoing in relation to Felipe's disappearance. For Felipe's loved ones, I'm sure it's not the result they were looking for. Then, just a few days after Calkins' exoneration, Terrence Williams disappears. And he was last seen getting into Deputy Calkins' squad car in the Naples Memorial Garden Cemetery. Which brings me back to January 16th, 2004. Hours after telling his dispatch supervisor that he never arrested Terrence Williams, couldn't remember having Terrence's Cadillac towed, or even really being at the cemetery in question, Deputy Culkin's memory miraculously returns. On the evening of Friday, January 16th, 2004, Deputy Steve Culkin's contradicts statements he made earlier that day. He admits that he did, in fact, have contact with Terrence Williams on the day Terrence disappeared. 
The deputy's not particularly forthcoming about the details at this time, but the following Monday, the sheriff's department asks him to submit a report detailing the encounter. According to Calkin's report, this is what happened. On Monday, January 12th, Deputy Calkins was driving down the road when he saw an older white Cadillac that appeared to be stalling out. He signaled to the car to pull off the main stretch and followed it into the Naples Memorial Garden Cemetery. He spoke to the driver who introduced himself as Terrence and didn't provide a last name and learned that the Cadillac he was driving wasn't registered. The deputy also learned that Terrence had no form of identification on him. This obviously presented a problem. It's illegal to drive without a license and to operate an unregistered vehicle anywhere in the United States. But according to Calkins, Terrence was distressed because without his car, he had no way to get to work. He apparently told Calkins that he worked at a nearby Circle K. After begging the deputy for a ride, Calkins agreed to help. Calkins told Terrence to get his license and registration in order and drove him to the Circle K. When they arrived, Terrence apparently told the deputy that his Cadillac actually was registered and the paperwork was in the glove box, which is why Culkins drove back to the cemetery. When he got there though, he didn't find any papers. So feeling like he'd gotten taken advantage of, Culkins called Circle K to try and track Terrence down again. He allegedly spoke to an employee who told him no one named Terrence worked there. And that's when he called in the Cadillac's license plate number to have it towed. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. First off, not to beat a dead horse, the interaction Deputy Calkins describes in this report doesn't seem like one that would be easily forgotten, especially after only four days. He's even alleging he made not one, but two trips to the Memorial Garden Cemetery a place that earlier he acted unsure he even visited. Second, the report is eerily similar to the ones Calkins made about Felipe Santos months earlier. In both cases, he pulled over a man who was driving without a license, and instead of following what you think would be standard police protocol, drove them to nearby Circle K's, supposedly out of the goodness of his heart. After Terrence's mom, Marcia, gets wind of this report, she points out a few more details that seem off. According to Calkins, he pulled Terrence over because his Cadillac was stalling, but Marcia claims her son had just gotten the car fixed up and tuned. She also believes that if her son really needed a ride, he would have called her or his roommate, Jason, before asking an officer. Not to mention, there's no reason for him to lie about working at Circle K. After finding out about Calkins' account, Marcia's husband, Terrence's stepfather, does some investigating of his own. He travels to the Circle K where Calkins claimed he brought Terrence and asked to see their security footage from that afternoon. He combs through the tapes, but he can't find Terrence anywhere. Then, after speaking to employees at the Circle K, he learns that no one who was working that day remembers seeing Terrence. They also don't remember receiving a phone call from an officer. Now at this point, Marcia and her husband don't even know about Felipe Santos's disappearance, but they do think that Calkin's story isn't adding up. So Marcia files a formal complaint against the deputy, his second one. And this triggers yet another investigation by internal affairs. 
This time, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI are brought in to act as objective third parties. Seeing as it was the last place both Felipe and Terrence were seen, they take Calkin's squad car in for testing. And here's where the details of these two cases get a little murky. In the Investigation Discovery series, Marcia says that someone involved in the investigation told her that Deputy Calkin's car was, quote, immaculate. But in another interview for the episode, a Collier County detective named Kevin O'Neill says investigators found trace evidence in the cruiser that was crucial to be kept confidential. Regardless of where the truth lies, Internal Affairs does more than just examine Calkin's car. On February 12, 2004, they administer a polygraph test. They ask the deputy a series of questions about what happened on the afternoon he had Terrence's car towed. And he passes. The machine doesn't detect any sort of deception. Now, of course, we know that polygraph tests are far from a perfect science. So officials press on with their investigation. They even place a GPS tracking device on Calkin's patrol car without his knowledge. In time, this leads officers to some wooded areas on the outskirts of Naples. Detectives start exploring the possibility Calkins disposed of evidence related to Felipe and Terence's disappearances somewhere in the wilderness, potentially even their remains. Altogether, they zero in on 12 locations. Helicopters are brought in to scan the area, while search parties fan out with cadaver dogs. But after two days, officials come up empty-handed. With a lack of physical evidence, detectives turn to Calkin's statements. Sometime in mid-March, investigators obtained two recordings of phone calls that Calkins placed on the afternoon that Terrence went missing, and they find both troubling. The first happened at 12.49 p.m. Calkins calls his dispatcher and says he's found a, quote, homie Cadillac on the side of the road near the Naples Memorial Cemetery. He doesn't mention Terrence at all. He acts as if he's found Terrence's car abandoned, which is troubling because it contradicts every other witness account of what happened that afternoon, including the one he later provided. And the fact that he calls Terrence's car a homie Cadillac, which is obviously coded racially charged language, is in and of itself a policy violation. The second call came to dispatch exactly 23 minutes later at 1.12 p.m. This time, Calkins requests a background check on Terrence Williams providing Terrence's full name. Remember, Calkins has made statements saying Terrence never provided his last name. So after listening to the recording, Internal Affairs asks how Calkins got Terrence's personal information. And the deputy says that maybe he found it on some paperwork in the Cadillac. This only convolutes his story further. As investigators remind him, Calkins specifically stated he didn't find any papers in Terrence's car. The interview gets to the point where the deputy admits his stories don't line up, but he doesn't elaborate or explain why. A couple weeks later on April 16th, detectives have Calkins undergo another polygraph. They ask him how he got Terrence's personal information. According to the test, he lies. They ask him if he interacted with Terrence after dropping him off at Circle K. According to the test, he lies again. Then after he's told he failed the test, he gets frustrated. He refuses to answer more questions. 
and asked to leave. Now, like I said, polygraphs are far from a perfect science. This alone isn't evidence of innocence or guilt. But by this point, detectives feel like Calkins is hiding something. They just can't pin down what. Besides trace evidence that may or may not have been found in Calkins' car, investigators have found absolutely no clues to say with any certainty what happened to Terrence or Felipe. And inconsistent statements and reports that are riddled with falsehoods, unfortunately, won't hold water in a court of law. But they are enough to get Deputy Calkins fired. In most places in the United States, it's an immediately fireable offense for police officers to lie on the job or in an official report. But not everyone has that policy, and even the places that do don't always enforce the rule, although they really should. It sounds so simple, but it can't be understated how important honesty is in law enforcement. If someone has the ability to arrest and imprison you with their testimony, there should be no question about their integrity. The first sign of possible deception, no matter how small, should trigger an investigation. Those with the most power, who literally have the ability to determine your freedom, should be held to the highest standards. So all of that to say, Deputy Calkins being fired was the very least one could and should expect. On August 20th, 2004, about 10 months after Felipe was last seen, and seven months after Terrence disappeared, Steve Calkins is dismissed from the Collier County Sheriff's Department. The formal report says he lost his job for, quote, non-compliance with rules and regulations, untruthfulness, and conduct unbecoming of an officer. But they emphasize that there's still no proof that any harm came to either Terrence or Felipe. Calkins tries to appeal the decision, he claims that his confusing statements were the result of stress and anxiety. The motion is denied. For her part, Marcia tries to bring a criminal suit against Calkins, but the charges don't stick. He relocates to Iowa and moves on with his life. It's not nearly as simple for the two men's families. In 2008 and 2009, respectively, after each being missing for five years, Felipe and Terrence are presumed dead under Florida law. Their cases remain open, but they're no longer actively investigated. Marcia spends several more years searching for Terrence, but she says she believes her son is never coming home. In her investigation discovery interview, she suggests that his and Felipe's remains are hidden somewhere close together. In her mind, these stories are inextricably linked. Their families may never know what really happened, but the similarities between Terrence and Felipe's cases suggest why her son may have been a target for a man like Calkins. It really boils down to the way he described Terrence's Cadillac. See, Terrence was black and Felipe was Mexican. They're both men of color. Each were somewhat new to town, economically disadvantaged, and didn't have an ID. We know Calkins had a near-perfect reputation before these disappearances, but he was also a white officer in a predominantly white, wealthy city. It's possible that his stellar reviews came from colleagues and residents who matched Naples' overriding demographic. To Marcia, 
Terrence and Felipe's cases look like racially motivated police brutality. So in 2018, she teams up with filmmaker Tyler Perry and a well-known lawyer named Benjamin Crump. Crump has represented the families of Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor. He specializes in cases involving civil rights abuse and hate crimes. Together, he and Marcia file a wrongful death suit against Steve Calkins. They allege he intentionally murdered both Terrence and Felipe. But in 2021, a court-appointed arbitrator ruled that there wasn't enough evidence to convict. And then, due to issues involving COVID-19, Crump and his team missed the deadline to file a request for trial. Because of this, the judge sides with the arbitrator, and the entire case is dismissed. It's an example of the complicated hoops people have to jump through in the pursuit of justice. But Marcia and Crump aren't giving up, and neither is Tyler Perry. As of this recording, he's offering a $200,000 reward to anyone who can provide meaningful information about the disappearances. In May of 2022, Tyler Perry executive produced two episodes of Never Seen Again on Paramount+, Plus, dedicated to Terrence's and Felipe's disappearances. Calkins declined to be interviewed for the docuseries. When CBS News covered the series later on, he again declined to make a statement, this time through his lawyer. Whatever happens in this case, and I really hope something does, the reality is the disappearances of Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos aren't isolated incidents. But in the vast majority of these cases, people don't get the support of celebrities or high-profile civil rights lawyers, let alone the attention of the public. Felipe Santos is actually a prime example. In researching this episode, I noticed that most of the coverage focused on Terrence. There's a wealth of information about him and his life. It's a good thing, don't get me wrong. But if it weren't for the fact that Terrence also went missing, Felipe's name might not have ever made headlines. Even now, there's much less information about Felipe out there. At least one of Felipe's brothers worries that giving interviews about the case will invite retaliation from law enforcement, and I don't blame them for being scared. Even when they knew Felipe was missing, his family was hesitant to contact authorities, and they're not alone. According to a 2013 report published by the University of Illinois at Chicago, 70% of undocumented immigrants say they're less likely to contact police, even if they're victims of a crime. Among all Latinos, 44% say the exact same thing, specifically citing their fear that officers will ask about their immigration status or that of their family. For people from marginalized communities, whether that be undocumented immigrants or people of color more broadly, interacting with authorities is a double-edged sword. It's a huge risk that might help them or totally disrupt their lives. And when you can't trust the law, where are you supposed to go? If telling your story is dangerous, how do you find answers? This is why it's so important for police to be trustworthy and to be held accountable if they betray that trust. If not, it undermines everyone's safety and freedom.
Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you want to learn more, donate, or get involved, check out the National Police Accountability Project. It's a nonprofit that's focused on protecting individuals' civil rights and holding members of law enforcement accountable for their actions. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, edited by Nora Patel and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Anya Bayerly, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.